Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This time, what just happened? The West warned an invasion of Ukraine was imminent, then Russia said it was moving forces away. We have not yet verified the Russian military units are returning to their home bases. We'll take them at their word, but we'll judge them by their actions. Two former residents of Moscow will give us their expert insights on what's really happening. Part of the UK's response is to double its troop numbers and send tanks to Estonia. We ask a defence minister if that's provoking Russia. That's why I was very clear that none of this would be going into Ukraine. This is all about reinforcing NATO's eastern flank. And in case it isn't over yet, we assess Ukraine's capability to fend off an invasion. Well, there is the home advantage because they should know the terrain extremely well. And of course, they can take advantage of their terrain to create problems for the enemy. Over the weekend, the handful of British training troops who were still in Ukraine were suddenly pulled out. Western warnings were ramped up to 11. Russian invasion, our leaders said, could come at any moment. The signs are, as you've heard from uh, President Biden, that they're at least planning uh, for something that could take place as early as in uh, the next 48 hours. We are on the edge of a precipice. Russia continued to tell the world what it's been saying for months. There is no plan to invade. And then... On Tuesday morning, a Russian defence ministry spokesman appeared on Twitter and YouTube announcing some of the tens of thousands of troops on manoeuvres close to Ukraine had finished their combat exercises and would be heading back to their bases. Another official Russian video swiftly followed, showing armoured vehicles being carried away on trains. On the other hand, the intelligence that we're seeing today is, is still not encouraging. We've got Russian field hospitals being constructed, more battalion tactical groups actually being brought closer uh, to the border uh, with Ukraine, according to the intelligence that we're, we're seeing. So mixed signals, I think, at the moment. The Western view seems to have settled on, at best, a sliver of very cautious optimism. Armed Forces Minister James Heapy. I don't know that on the ground anything has changed at all, and that is the point that the President of the United States, the Secretary of State for Defence, and many other Western politicians have been making. Obviously, we want to take the Russians' uh, word in good faith, and uh, so people are cautiously optimistic, but we need to see military hardware moving away from the border before I think anybody really starts to um, let their guard down. And you seem so certain an invasion could be 48 hours away just a few days ago. I mean, how can you be uncertain as to what's happening now? Well, in fairness, I was never certain around a date. What I was saying, that the conditions are set, all of the key enablers that Russia would need to mount an invasion have been in place, all of the artillery, the missile systems, the planes. So actually what I was saying is that it could literally happen any minute and with no further warning. The fact is that the Russian hardware on the ground hasn't moved. Arguably preparations appear to still be continuing. So until movements on the ground match the words from the Kremlin, I think people like me need to remain vigilant and uh, convey the sense of urgency that we feel. Well, I'll talk to the Minister more a little later on, but there are lots of questions to explore 
Is it over? Has one side or other been bluffing all along? Maybe both. Has anyone come out a winner at this point? Well, with us are the former UK ambassador to Russia, Sir Andrew Wood, the journalist Mary Dudevsky, who has been both Moscow and diplomatic correspondent for The Independent, and Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, welcome to all of you. Mary Dudevsky, what do you think happened on Tuesday with Russia's announcement and what is it doing now? Well, I think Russia's announcement was designed to provide, as it, from its perspective, evidence of de-escalation. What we don't know, because it's in the, in the context of everything that's been said over the last two weeks in particular, um, I think that everybody, especially people in my position as journalists, people reporting on this, need to be deeply sceptical of what both sides have been saying. And, uh, you know, it's not quite accurate of the Armed Forces Minister to say, well, you know, I wasn't certain about this. I simply said that these uh, that, that the elements were in place for an invasion. The fact is that he might not have said that, but people in a position supposedly to know were spinning the idea to journalists of dates and times of when, uh, when an invasion would happen. And the fact is it has not happened. As Andrew Wood, do you think we can take Vladimir Putin's government at its word on this? No. The, the purpose of the troops surrounding a good part of Ukraine is obviously intimidation and send a strong message to Ukraine. The debate has been framed by the Russians in terms of possible Ukraine-NATO membership. The fact is their aim is fundamentally to get Ukraine basically permanently under their control. They don't like Ukraine because it's pursued a more democratic path than the Russians have. But and also they would like a zone of special influence, like in Belarus, which would protect them or protect their form of government by having the same sort of government there um, under control of, of, uh, of Moscow. Professor Michael Clark, um, what's your take on the current situation? Is the crisis over or are we on the, on the road to the end of the crisis? Uh, not for a while yet, I think. All the conflicting reports, I think, that Mary refers to are certainly there. And the best analysis I think we can make of them is that the Russians are moving around their battalion tactical groups, which is why some are seen doing, you know, mo moving to different places, but a lot of the equipment is still in place. And what NATO is concerned about is that all of the sort of things that you wouldn't normally have on an exercise, like medical services brought forward and extra blood supplies and extra ammunition, I mean, exercises are very expensive. And so you don't normally do that. And you certainly don't normally have 60% of all of your land forces employed on on exercises all at the same time. So clearly the Russians are not just exercising and there's no real evidence yet that they are pulling back. On the other hand, it looks as if the Russians are looking to create a, a sort of long-term issue to keep a certain amount of military pressure up around Ukraine while they pitch for a reset, a complete resetting of the post-Cold War order after 1991. And that's what's at the back of all of this. And uh, Ukraine is being used as a bit of a hostage to it. So I think we've got to expect this to carry on probably throughout the, the months of the rest of this year in one form or another. Mary, I just want to pick up on something that you mentioned about the spinning of um, the date and the time of this potential invasion that never happened. What do you think those spinning wants to get out of it, if well, they assume I mean, they were? 
<laughs> assuming that they were spinning, it's very hard to see what they can get out of it because other than extreme alarm. And I think it's incredibly to um, Ukraine's credit and to the credit of President Zelensky that Ukraine is almost the one country here that's refused to be panicked by what I would call disinformation that's been going on on both sides. So Andrew Wood, how would you judge the current state of the crisis? I think this is a, a long-term effort to keep Ukraine worried. It's also a reflection of the dilemma Putin has set for himself. I don't think the people of Russia either want war or would relish the fact that they were in, in fighting with Ukraine. So it's a waiting game in a sense. Well, NATO clearly isn't terribly reassured by what Russia said this week. Defence ministers meeting in Brussels announced yet more troops and military hardware will go to the alliance's easternmost members, exactly the reverse of a key Russian demand. Britain's contribution includes doubling its troop numbers in Estonia and sending Type 45 destroyer HMS Diamond to the region. Armed Forces Minister James Heapy again. What the UK has committed is significant. Extra typhoon to RAF Akrotiri, uh, allowing us to play a role with air policing in the Black Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean, and in Southeast Europe. An extra battalion and a brigade headquarters onto uh, Operation Cabrit in Estonia. So across all three services, the UK is playing a part alongside our NATO allies. What we now need to do is then let the dust settle and if there's a requirement for more British uh, troops or ships or planes to be committed, then we have the appetite to do so. But I think it's important that that is all coordinated through NATO. And if there is a requirement for more British involvement, I mean, that obviously could be seen and pushed out by Putin as being provocative. Well, that's why I was very clear that none of this would be going into Ukraine. This is all about reinforcing NATO's eastern flank. And actually, I think that has been the message that we've been trying to deliver to uh, President Putin for some time now. Will British training troops be returning to Ukraine? Far too early to say, because as I've said a couple of times, fundamentally, nothing has changed on the ground. The threat of violence is exactly the same today as it was four days ago. So far, far too early to be saying whether this genuinely is all over, let alone making any judgments about returning British training uh, troops. OK, so what conditions do need to change on the ground for British training troops to go back? Well, I think the very obvious thing would be that the Russians turn around and drive away. We cannot, will not be part of a conflict in Ukraine. If we were, there would be a risk of escalation that would drag in the rest of NATO that I don't think is acceptable for anyone. And equally importantly, it would simply uh, deliver the pretext that President Putin wants to show that NATO has ambitions for Ukraine. So once the Russians are moving away from the border, uh, then I think we're in a place to look at whether we can restore the mission. Um, for the time being, given that the Russians aren't moving away from the border, we have to remain uh, on the trajectory that we're on at the moment. Presumably it is quite important that British training troops are seen to go back at some stage because otherwise it looks like President Putin has won. Oh, I, I would agree with the premise of the question. Absolutely. It's just too early to be saying that we will definitely be sending them back and to give you any indication of a date. Once but it is the conditions, hope. Well, oh, completely. More, more than a hope. It would be the expectation. But once the conditions are, are met for UK troops to be able to return, 
in a less febrile security atmosphere, we will get them back there as quick as we can. It's just right now I see no sign of the security conditions changing. I just hear some words that give us cautious grounds for optimism, but nothing more. Armed Forces Minister James Heapy. Sir Andrew Wood, if you were still ambassador to Moscow, what would you be saying to Whitehall about doubling forces in Estonia and the idea of sending military trainers back to Ukraine when we're appealing for de-escalation? I don't think sending more troops to Estonia has anything to do with de-escalation. Estonia is not a threat to, to Russia. If there's a threat, it's a threat in the opposite direction, that is to Estonia from Russia. But I think to, what's important to remember is that the, it's one person, essentially, who will take the decisions on this, and that is President Putin. He will have to make a, a, a decision one way or another at some stage. But at the moment, there's some use to him in spinning it out. You say that sending more British troops to Estonia is not escalating the situation, but the way Russia sees it, it perceives NATO troops on its borders as a threat. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? They see everything a threat. The whole world is a threat to them. And it's particularly prevalent in if you're locked up in a bunker or locked yourself up in a bunker like Putin. They do have their worries, but I do not think objectively there is any worry whatsoever of Estonia invading Russia. Mary Dijewski, Vladimir Putin must have known all along that NATO's response would be to reinforce its former Soviet members. It all started after the invasion of Crimea. So how's he going to take this? Well, I think that um, people are really almost perversely refusing to listen to what Putin has been saying and what Putin's been doing, because right from the beginning of all this, he's been denying that Russia had any intention of invading Ukraine. His reward for this was extraordinarily patronising um, advice from Britain and various other people saying, well, Putin really has to realise um, the cost of, of getting involved in a war in Ukraine. I don't think Putin has the slightest illusion about the cost of Russia getting involved in a war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, my view would actually be that getting involved in a war in Ukraine would potentially be the greatest threat to Putin's position as Russian leader, that a war would be unpopular in, in Russia, incredibly unpopular if there were casualties, which there would likely to be. You're looking at um, reviving memories in Russia of Afghanistan. And I'd, I really don't think that Putin as leader could survive a messy war in Ukraine. And I'm sure that Putin knows that. He doesn't need advice from the British and the Americans to say, oh, don't do that. So, Andrew, are, are we guilty of having been patronising towards Vladimir Putin? No, not at all. And you don't put a lot of troops around a country without that country being threatened and being meant to be threatened. Russia has been at war with Ukraine in a general way and in a very particular way since 2014 and has been putting pressure on Ukraine for a good 20 years to come under Russia's umbrella. Michael Clark, you've talked in the past about British forces in Estonia simply being a tripwire. Does doubling their number change that? Is it militarily significant? Well, it, it makes it a, a thicker tripwire. Um, and the real purpose of this is reassurance and also to show everybody, ourselves as well as, well as everyone else, that reinforcement is possible. Uh, I mean, the, the troops, uh, another 850 troops are going to Estonia. Uh, Challenger 2 and AS-90 artillery is leaving from Senelaga to go up to Estonia, uh, HMS Trent 
and HMS Diamond are going to cruise off Estonia. All of these are effectively symbolic, but the point is, if NATO has to prove that it could reinforce, you know, 100,000 troops into the north of Europe or 100,000 troops into the south of Europe at some time in the future, the fact that it has battle groups in those countries um, is significant, showing that NATO is not passive and that if it needs to, it will react. That's really the message here. Mary I wonder how the citizens of Russia view what's going on. Would they see what's happened over the last week as a win for President Putin? That's very, very difficult to judge. Um, the, the mood in Russia is very hostile to any new war, and in particular to any war with Ukraine. I think there's been quite a, a, a degree of sort of amazement um, at the accusations that have been flying from the US and, uh, uh, and the UK, um, because they simply don't recognise that. And okay, that is because of their, you know, the, 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 the way their media has been presenting this in a very different way from the, from the way we have. But if we just go back to the, um, the, the, the the reinforcement of British troops outside Ukraine. You know, there is no way that most Russians would see that as anything other than an aggressive move. And I think that, um, you know, Sir Andrews re re referred repeatedly to, to, to the number of Russian troops um, supposedly surrounding or not quite surrounding um, Ukraine. But I don't think the idea should be completely excluded that from Russia's perspective, those troops are seen as defensive. They've watched as Western countries have been pouring in military hardware, what the Americans have called lethal, lethal aid into Ukraine and see the, the possibility of a NATO-backed, if not NATO-led, operation against Russia using Ukraine as a forward base. Now, you know, you can say that is absurd. That is totally unrealistic. It's not completely unrealistic if you're sitting in Moscow. Well, there are Russians and Russians. Of course, that's the propaganda and some of them will believe it. But the idea of our uh, invading Russia is obviously lunatic. And you can't expect us to look at these troops going round and you can't expect the Poles or the Ukrainian or the Estonians and so on without feeling some fear of Russia. And Andrew, you know how hardball diplomacy works. Could the West have been bluffing with its warnings of an imminent threat, trying to force Russia's hand, use the bathroom or vacate it to give a polite metaphor? No. It's, it, again, the person making the decision is, is Putin. The people around him will say what they're meant to say, but you cannot rely on it for truth. When he says we're not going to invade, maybe he means we're not going to invade tomorrow. Maybe he does mean he doesn't want to invade, but he may have to. But there's no question but that he has set up the possibility of doing it. We have not. Mary, um, you said earlier that the um, problem is that the, the UK, the West, is not listening to Russia when he says that. Do, do you believe him then when he says he, he has no intention to invade Ukraine? Well, I think two things about that. I think you should at least listen. Preparing for the worst and hoping for the best is obviously uh, is obviously the best uh, the, the the best approach. Um, but I don't think you should exclude the fact that Putin means what he says. And the other thing is simply to go back to the argument about the the, the complete folly of anybody invading Ukraine, especially Russia. 
it, it, it's just not a project that makes any sense. And I, I, I actually um, disagree with Sir Andrew on this too. I don't think that Putin's aim in life is to reabsorb Ukraine into into Russia's sphere. I think what what it wants is to keep Ukraine out of being decisively in the Western sphere. You could talk about maybe neutrality, disarming. Um, there are all sorts of paths that would be less than Ukraine joining NATO. Michael Clark, uh, where we're at today, how do NATO and its members come out of this? On the one hand, countries have been a long way from unified messaging. Russia gets to make the charge of humiliating debunking of war propaganda. On the other, uh, NATO still managed to stand firm and stay, say it stared Russia down. Well, yes, I think the effect of this crisis so far has been a shot in the arm for NATO um, because NATO has shown that, it's, that it does have some unity, even though there are differences in tone between the Germans, the French, and then Britain and America on the other hand. Nobody is breaking ranks at the moment. And yesterday's statement from the North Atlantic Council was extremely tough. And they announced that they were looking at creating more battle groups in, uh, in the future in Romania and Bulgaria, Hungary and Slovakia. And the Romanian one was even going to be led by France. And so this is, you know, Mr. Macron, who said in 2019 that NATO was brain dead, is now offering to lead a new battle group in Romania. Now, these may or may not come about. But in addition to the four battle groups in the north, in the three Baltic states and Poland, the effect of this crisis within uh, about this year, by the end of this year, might be four more battle groups uh, in the south. Plus, uh, Finland and Sweden actively talking now about the possibility at some time in the future of NATO membership. So I think NATO is entitled to turn around and say, how do you feel about that, Mr. Putin? Um, you know, is this really what you wanted in terms of resetting the security agenda in Europe? So uh, uh, on the immediate sense, I think NATO is coming out of this better than some of us thought it might a couple of months ago. Michael Clark, stay with us. Mary Dijewski and Sir Andrew Wood, thank you so much for your time today. invasion remains distinctly possible. That was US President Joe Biden's blunt assessment 12 hours after Russia said it had started moving troops away from Ukraine's borders. So if this is a Russian bluff or there's a change of mind in the Kremlin, could Ukraine successfully fight off a Russian attempt to invade? James Hurst has been comparing their military numbers. In terms of people on the ground, Ukraine is actually pretty well matched with the 130,000 troops that Russia is said to have massed within striking distance. Ukraine's own army has about 125,000 active personnel. When it comes to hardware, however, Russia has clearly got the bigger numbers. It's reported to have around 1,200 tanks in the region. Ukraine's total fleet of around 850 main battle tanks is respectable, it's still only about two-thirds of those that it could be facing from Russia. And while Ukraine does have some missile and anti-tank weapons, they're a fraction of Russia's arsenal. At sea, Ukraine is totally outgunned by Russia, which has 13 warships in the Black Sea, giving it some amphibious assault capability. Ukraine has got just one comparable warship, a frigate. That's because it lost most of its navy when Crimea was annexed. 
Ukraine does have 124 combat-capable aircraft, though some analysts say it is short of pilots for those planes. Russia is getting on for double that number of combat-capable aircraft at 219. Well, the figures you heard there from James on the size of Ukraine's forces come from the International Institute for Strategic Studies' newly updated military balance study. Brigadier Ben Barry is senior fellow for land warfare at the IISS. How would he rate Ukraine's chances if it faced invasion? I think it would find it very difficult. It's not necessarily impossible, but the Ukrainian forces would have to have a much higher degree of tactical effectiveness morale uh, and training and a better strategy and a better operational level plan than the the Russians. If I can just give you a couple of other factors, much of the equipment is the same baseline. It's it's Russian equipment, it's Russian T-72s, it's Russian anti-tank missiles. But by and large, the the Ukrainian equipment is less modernized than the Russian equipment. There's also an inconvenient truth that the Russians know and understand this equipment. So, for example, they'll know very well how to jam Ukrainian radar or decoy Ukrainian anti-tank missiles. There's also very difficult geography for Ukrainian defenders. I mean, Ukraine is surrounded by Russian forces. Think of a clock face from 10 o'clock right round to about 7 o'clock. It's surrounded. Defending against that is actually a pretty tricky task because the attacker has the initiative and the attacker can attack from all points of the compass in that arc. So the defender can't defend everywhere. It's going to have to defend what's vital and it's going to have to have strong mobile reserves to react to the battle as as it uh, develops. And if you are fighting off an invasion, is there any home advantage at all that they should be thinking of? Well, there is the home advantage because they should know the terrain intimately. They should know it extremely well. And of course, they can take advantage of their terrain to create problems for the enemy, for example, by by flooding rivers for for defence. They've also got um, a nation that's pretty united behind them and a lot of civilians who who want to help. But that doesn't overcome the considerable challenge posed by these very strong Russian forces that are arrayed all around Ukraine. Out of that 130,000-odd Russian troops that you quoted, um, if I was the Ukrainian government, I'd want to see about two-thirds of them go home before I considered uh, that the threat had reduced sufficiently. Mm. And on those troop numbers, there's no single definitive source for the figures, um, and or indeed for the 1,200 tanks that are cited. Russia accuses the West of alarmist propaganda with these numbers. How much confidence do you have in those estimates? Well, our estimates are certainly that there's over 100,000 Russian troops uh, within striking distance of Ukraine. We'd also agree that that Russia has concentrated quite a few aircraft as well, so that two-to-one ratio in favour of Russia. Now, I think, you know, if a war did start... Uh, Russia then has the option, as as soon as the war starts, to send yet more forces, just as uh, the US in 2003 started its attack on Iraq, but then flowed in um, two other divisions as soon as the attack had started. And if you were a Ukrainian army commander, what would you be doing right now? Well, I'd be watching the intelligence. I'd be 
uh, making sure that my troops were as motivated and well briefed as, as they could be. And um, because the actual arcs of advance that Russian land forces could use are so unpredictable, I'd want a lot of flexibility and quick reaction in my force. So I'd, I'd be particularly concerned about my reserves. I want to make sure they were adequately protected by air defence. And I'd want to be sure that they could move as quickly as they possibly can uh, when they're actually needed. Brigadier Ben Barry from the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Professor Michael Clark, briefly, what do you expect to see happen in the next few days? Well, the next few days are going to be fairly critical because the Russians can't keep their forces at high readiness for very much longer. And we've said on this programme before that the real danger period is now until maybe the end of the first or second week of March. So they either have to, as it were, take action and go or start to really draw down. And there'll be a lot of activity in the next few days. We, as I say, we can see battle groups moving around in the in theatre, but whether they're just repositioning themselves or whether they're actually preparing to go home, we don't know. The exercises are due to finish on the 20th, which is in a couple of days' time. So that will be quite uh, interesting to see what happens after the 20th. And uh, tomorrow, the uh, Munich Security Conference begins, Friday till Sunday. And there will be only one topic of conversation at Munich. They'll all be there. All the big names are there. So that will be one to watch. And if this is the end of the physical standoff, when will it be clear? I would guess by the middle of March. I mean, as Ben Barry said, for normality to be restored, then something like 80,000 of those 130,000 Russian troops have got to go back. Then we'll have some sense that the crisis has gone back to normality in some sort of way. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. Well, that's it for this edition. There's already an extra edition of BFBS SITREP online where you can hear in depth from the Armed Forces Minister James Heapy, including what he thinks Vladimir Putin actually wants and whether the West's being caught out crying wolf. That's at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you get your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.